Hi and welcome to Elsie's Mundo uh, Book Club podcast. Good morning, everyone. Today our guest is Adam Farrell. Hi, Adam. Hey, hello, everybody. Good morning to you, Elsa, and good evening, I guess, from me, because um, it is nine o'clock p.m. where I am. Okay, where are you, and um, what can you introduce yourself a little bit? Like, what do you do? And yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, as Elsa mentioned, my name is Adam Farrell, and uh, I am uh, calling in today from San Jose, California, uh, where I am something like an accountant now uh, my job titles change but uh at the very bottom i guess i'm a teacher uh i've taught in america and in japan and uh and i continue to teach yeah and so now i'm a chess teacher cool all right but i know that you have like a close relation to books as well not uh, yeah you were also an avid reader but you used to run a book club as well Yeah, um, <laughs> did, did I? <laughs> uh, outside of education, I don't know uh, that I did run a book club, Elsa. Maybe you can refresh my memory. Um, there was a book club <laughs> that we visited together when there were like some reading done for with to some children who come from a um, troubled background or something like that. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That was a volunteer opportunity and I didn't run it, but I was very happy to be part of it uh, called Reading to Kids. And uh, you, you alluded earlier to my relationship with books. That is a very deep relationship I have. It's a, it's a wonderful relationship that gives much, much more than it takes. So there is some cost associated. Um, but I want to give that gift to children as well. And so uh, thank you for participating with me. But um, but yeah, reading to kids in Los Angeles, one Sunday a month, uh, you go out to uh, one Saturday a month, you go out to a school and you read to kids and you end up giving them a book afterwards. I encourage your listeners to find something like that in their neighborhoods and, uh, and give it a shot. Does that book club still exist? It does, uh, and I know this because even though I'm not in Los Angeles, I still get emails every week to go join a book club in Los Angeles wow. and go read. It must be a nice, cozy feeling. Um, <laughs> do you know any direct, like, you know, consequences of that book club? Like, do you know of any children who got out and became an avid reader themselves or, you know, just got into reading by that? Yes, this is, and that's the amazing thing is how consistently that happens. Um, it's not a, uh, it's not a rare occasion where, oh, remember that one kid who did well or, or something like this. It really is a very linear relationship between children and books. Um, the more time they spend around books, reading books, even being around people who are reading, shows them a good example of concentration and focus and learning new things, the wonderful stories that books contain, all the amazing knowledge. Uh, but you need an example. You need help to get there. And that's what the club does. And that's what, uh, that's what I'm so proud to be a part of. Nice. What kind of books did you read there? Uh, what kind of books did we read? So it would change, they had a theme. 
So, so the way the book club was broken up was that we were reading to some people read to fifth graders, fourth graders, third graders, second graders, and down to kindergarten. And so there would be a theme for everybody. And the theme may be, you know, adventure and action, uh, ancient times. Uh, it can be, you know, uh, something informative. Uh, it could be about cooking or whatever, but we all had books about the same theme and uh, we would go to our different grade levels and read with them. And so uh, the kids absolutely loved it. Of course, we, you know, tailored it for the kids, lots of interesting adventures and lots of bright colors and vivid stories. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for sharing about it. Tell me, tell me what you remember from the club. Thank you for coming along. I, I, I'd kind of forgotten, if I may say. <laughs> I was just barely listening because the kids told me that my accent is not understandable for oh. them. So. <laughs> and I think like after that, like we stayed there, like to color some letters or something like that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that was an important part of it as well, uh, having an activity. Uh, mm -hmm. Not just, you know, sit down and read, but take what you've read and turn it into something that you can take home with you. Oh, I've forgotten about that. Well, thank you for encouraging our listeners to take part in something like that or start their own book club like that. I think it's yeah. um, very important to to teach in the era of smartphones, the era of smart devices, our children and also our students to read continuously, because as you said, reading is a very rewarding hobby. What kind of book did you book for us today? <laughs> well, I almost, I have to tell you, Elsa, I almost canceled because uh, I don't have a copy of the book in front of me and I want to convey to the readers how excited I am uh, and I want to read from it. But unfortunately, it's in a box somewhere on its way from Japan, thanks to the pandemic, even a year later, and I don't have a copy in front of me. But I didn't cancel. So <laughs> um, the book that I'm going to tell you about was published in 2007. And it's called I Am a Strange Loop. And the book uh, I Am a Strange Loop is by the author Douglas Hofstetter, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1980 for uh, a very popular book in America called Gödel Escher Bach. I didn't like that book. <laughs> okay. It's funny, that book won, won the prize. I didn't like that book. I like the next book, I Am a Strange Loop, and that's what I want to talk about today. Okay, what is it about and what caught your attention in it? Well, so the reason why I picked up the book is because the author was so famous for his other book, uh, the one that I didn't like too much, but it was an interesting book. I Am a Strange Loop was different because it's personal. It's personal in a way that uh, brings the reader into someone else's world in a in a non-academic way and it starts out with some simple ideas and the first idea that it starts out with is this idea of a soul so <laughs> and that's already you already think so many different things when this idea of the soul comes up but i'm going to ask you a question elza okay. uh do you think does a mosquito have a soul Okay, that's a strange question. It depends on like how far the mosquito is from me. 
Like if it's bugging me and if it's bothering me, I consider to believe maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the exact question that we face when we have to swat a mosquito. So <laughs> let's start out something more, even more basic, a tomato, right? We slice, a tomato is a living thing. And we, without any hesitation, slice them up, put them on a salad, put them in a sandwich, roast them, bake them, and everything else to a tomato uh, without even thinking about this idea of consciousness, though it is a living collection of cells. A mosquito has motion. It knows where it's going, I guess. It can pick you out. And so if you start to consider whether or not a mosquito is an animate object in the, or is a self-motivating object, you just, what are its motivations? It wants to eat and I guess reproduce and maybe not much more than that. Maybe escape danger, uh, find shelter. You can probably come up with a list of about 10 things that a mosquito wants to do and that's all it does. Does that mean it has less of a soul? Well, maybe. Right. I haven't defined soul and I'm not going to, uh, but it's something to consider this idea of whether or not there are different sizes of souls, so to speak. And so the author starts there and then he he talks about what it is that uh, I suppose differentiates a mosquito from, say, a dog. Now, dogs aren't people, but they are complex. They have motivations maybe that we don't understand, though they can be simple at times. Squirrel, maybe the idea of love, right? Dogs just want to hang around. <laughs> that reminds me of something funny. Uh, Elsa, do you have any pets in your life right now? No, but I dearly miss my cat back from Hungary. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I don't have any pets, but my neighbor does, and he leaves the door open. So sometimes I have pets. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and they come over and I never know what the, what the thing is thinking or what it wants, but it just seems to like company, it likes to hang around people. In fact, the, the more I ignore it, the more comfortable it is in my environment. And so uh, when you're talking about maybe more sophisticated animals than a mosquito, uh, maybe they do have some representation of the outside world. They have motivations we don't understand, thoughts, feelings. And certainly when you scale it up to bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, humans, other primates, we are more, much more willing to say, yes, this is a, an identifiable thing that has some essence of itself that's beyond its body and its, even its brain. It's got a soul of some kind. Now that's just, you know, kind of talking. It's just language. It's not something that you can act upon, though we do. We do make these choices. Uh, especially when it comes to food, for example. And a lot of people are vegetarians because they do see souls in those creatures that we consume. Uh, some of us see that less so. So I don't want to say we don't act upon it, but nonetheless, it can all seem like rhetoric. Uh, and this author brings that rhetoric really to life uh, in the book. Once again, the title, I Am a Strange Loop. So where does this idea of a loop come in? In the most basic sense, a loop is, uh, it's kind of a, it's a closed string, right? It's like a circle. It can be really complex and come back in on itself. It can be two dimensions, three dimensions, maybe more dimensions. But 
this notion that when the author says, I am a strange loop, he means uh, something like a feedback loop in audio. Uh, Elsa, you work in audio since you run a podcast. Do you, do you ever have feedback loops? I'm very amateur. <laughs> <laughs> but still, yeah, you know, it's uh, maybe I'm just older, but I always remember. Um, no, in fact, this happened to me at my middle school graduation. My grades weren't good enough to walk with the rest of the children in graduation. So they put me in charge of doing the audio. And I was supposed to turn up somebody's mic and then turn down the mic and turn on the music. But I, every time I tried it, it kept running into that feedback loop. And everybody would cover their ears and it was horrible. Uh, and finally somebody came and helped me. Uh, but this idea of a feedback loop is very common when you have something that's recording and something that's putting out that audio. Uh, the same thing, and, and what it is, of course, is the microphone is capturing the noise that it's making, and the noise it's making is coming from the speaker, so it catches that noise, and pretty soon it just amplifies it more and more. Well, uh, the same thing can happen in video. If you have a video camera and it's pointed at a plant, nothing special. If you have a video camera and it's pointed at a TV, eh, nothing special, unless that TV is showing what the video camera is taking in. And then you get this feedback loop, right? This infinite cascade of walls and windows, maybe two mirrors, like in a bathroom or something. If you have mirrors opposite each other, the world seems to stretch on and on to infinity. And so why does this loop, what does this loop have to do with consciousness and mosquitoes and tomatoes? Well, according to the author, and again, I, I wish I had the book in front of me um, because he uses such really good examples and really good language. But according to the author, this idea of consciousness really is a feedback loop in the mind. How? Oh. So the mind is a perceiving organ in whatever creature we find it in, whether it's a squid, whether it's an octopus with their diverse multifaceted arms that also contain the sensory cells of their brain uh, or the neuronal cells of their brain or whatever it is, brains are really good at uh, perceiving things, especially the outside world. It really helps with survival, it turns out. And so what happens when the brain starts perceiving itself is kind of, becomes kind of the crux of this notion of consciousness. We, of course, don't think that mosquitoes are perceiving their own desires. A mosquito doesn't necessarily feel depressed, or if it does, it doesn't know that it's depressed. A dog or a cat, maybe so. They lose partners and will be sad and forlorn at things in the outside environment. But this idea that they understand that they are feeling something, this notion that, uh, that there's self-reflection going on. We haven't quite established that yet, but with people, certainly, we know that that's the hallmark of the human condition. Not only are we hungry, we know we're hungry. We know we weren't hungry yesterday. We hope we're not hungry tomorrow. That continuity of desire and of reflection and of perception becomes this notion that the author uses for I. And when he says, I am a strange loop, he means that essentially, um, <laughs> For example, <laughs> I use this as, a, as an example. Elza, I may or may not know something. <laughs> I 
anything. I may know something. You may know that I know something, but if I know that you know, well, then I know that you know that I know something. And now you, now that you know that I know, you know I know that you know that I know something. I get it. Are you still following me? Sure. <laughs> I can only go about three of those deep. <laughs> but according to the author, uh, this idea of consciousness is that we can expand that a million fold. That the difference between us and a, a really smart raccoon, uh, for example, is that we we have this infinite recursion that is the continuity of self that we call I. This That's what I am, and that is the perceiving, quote-unquote, soul uh, of me, is this recursive loop of me, of processing sort of the external world through this infinite mirror of, of self-reflection. It feels like that was quite a mouthful. <laughs> All right, thank you. Yeah, when you first mentioned this book, I felt like it's going to be a book about overthinking. Because, like, honestly, we people do that sometimes, or some of us, most of the time. But um, it's just like, you know, that human beings always try to find an excuse or an, like an explanation to something that they have done oh. or or they are about to yeah. do and things like that. That's and that, a... that could be also like a strange loop in a way, because whenever, That's a perfect example. whenever somebody, you know, uh, has a counter argument, you can find another excuse or you can find another explanation why you are doing that. And our definition, like this self-definition that you mentioned, that how we define ourselves, like how do I define I? and what makes us different from each other could be also one of these. And that then, then the question um, arises in me that why do we need to define ourselves at all? What do you think about that? Or does the author mention anything about that? He does. And that's, that's one of the central kind of aspects of his book is uh, can we escape this notion of I somehow? Uh, it's certainly part of uh, many uh, religious practices and, mm -hmm. and other traditions, this um, minimization of the self, the enlargement of the other, or, or, you know, just very directly removing yourself from the concept of ego. Uh, I do want to touch on uh, the example that you use because it's so perfect. Uh, this idea of uh, people interacting, right? I... I gauge my interactions or I moderate my interactions based on what you're thinking, but I don't know what you're thinking, right? I have to guess what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I have to sort of put myself in your shoes. What would you be thinking if I were in this situation? Would you be afraid or happy or aggressive or angry or, or whatever it is? And so we, in the world every day in society, we constantly bounce off of other people guessing what they're thinking, but really projecting what we're thinking and, and these layered examples like that. So I really like that example that you brought up. You really are hitting the, the point right on the head. Thanks. And I didn't even read the book. <laughs> it's a must read for me as well. 
no because i'm just thinking like you know in like especially these people interacting with each other these notions that we may or may know or these notions that we may or may believe or may not believe about each other mm. hinder our communication and you know in in today's world it's fancy to say that i'm an empathetic or I'm a person who can fear for you, but in reality, it's not true. In reality, that's a lie because most of the people just, it's, I, I don't want to say that they just say it, but they don't mean it. I'm sure they mean it, but they mean it with restrictions to themselves. And because we, we really cannot feel how the other person is feeling or how the other person is thinking about something because we don't, we don't know. It's a it's a powerful thing and to to at least realize that you don't know, right? That that what you are seeing is not reality. Mm. That you're you're seeing it through your own lens of mirrors. Um in philosophy the the postmodernists claimed that there was no truth, capital T, mm -hmm. because everything is filtered through our percep perceptions. Uh how can you they use the example, how can you go to Paris and see it for the first time when you've seen it so many times in movies and read it about it so many times in books. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to experience reality through this layer of, of either experience or notions, ideas, and perceptions. Mm -hmm. And it's important, yeah, to, to realize that. A quote comes to my mind about this, like, there is not only one word, but there are millions and millions of the word like, you know, everybody who wakes up and open their eyes, millions and millions of words are waking up every morning. And that's mm. so true. I don't know in which book I read that though, but it's a beautiful idea. Down. Yeah. And that's, that's true too. I mean, you know, this... yeah, but it also, well, I'm not so sure if it's true because if everybody's asleep, then does the world still exist? The outside world, I guess. Okay, you got me here. <laughs> you you need to answer to your own question now, Adam. <laughs> well, and actually, that that brings me to the part of the book that's personal. Um, we've been having this abstract discussion about ego and ideas, but I told you that the book was personal, and here's why: the author was uh, was uh, lost his wife very suddenly to a brain tumor, and. And it was, of course, a tough and difficult process. And it was one that he had uh, the ability to, to express with uh, the famous author and, and philosopher Daniel Dennett. I guess they were writing buddies or, or, or something like that. And so a lot of these ideas come from that conversation and come from his unwillingness to believe that his wife's death was the final end, uh, that when someone dies, that really is the end of it. He, he firmly believed that he carried some part of her with him. And so there's a sense in which this book is describing how that ontology of ideas uh, came about. That, that in fact, because he had interacted with his wife, because he had reflected her personality onto himself and had projected his onto hers in such a, uh, a high degree, that in fact she does live on through him and through those people that she interacted with and that we all in fact live on through people that are close to us and have um, 
absorb this process of, of reflection and, and feedback so loops. And I feel like it's even true when the other person, you know, the other person doesn't necessarily have to die for it. The other person can just go away from our lives. Like, mm. you know, if you leave a job and and you you go to another place and you meet new colleagues and new people or new students in our cases, um, yeah. some of our students still live on. And I believe that's like a little bit also ego feeding <laughs> coming back <laughs> to the book. But I also believe that that we also live on in some of our students, like with some topics, with some well-placed sentences, with some, you know, like whenever they read our favorite books, who knows, they maybe think of us like, oh, teacher Adam or teacher Elsa, like, oh, they recommended this book to me. And wow, you know, good old times. Yeah, That's like, that, that's why we are also saying this all the time, good old times, even though at that time, those times were not necessarily good. But remembering gives us this feeling of nostalgia, nostalgia, that, oh, they were actually good. <laughs> it's like that with the classroom, right? I think about the classroom fondly, but when you're standing there in front of 20 kids and you're reaching for lesson plans and you've got your eye on what one kid's doing and the principal walks in and who knows what's going on, it's not such a, a peaceful memory sometimes mm. or yeah. peaceful experience. Yeah, but looking back to it gives us different feeling. Mm. Hmm. There's one other part of the book that I want to mention. Okay. Um, and again, I, I, you know, I should, of course, I shouldn't say there's one other part. I'd love to talk about the book forever, but uh, maybe we can do the, uh, I can come back on when I have the book in front of me. But, <laughs> oh, um, you already want to come back. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, yeah, I hope there's a series. I've got lots of books that I'd love to talk about. Okay. Um, but for... Uh, you can be a recurring guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a recurring character until I get killed off in the series. <laughs> um, you will live on in us, I assure yeah. you, and in the listeners as well. <laughs> oh, that's, you know, Elsa, that's a really interesting point. What about fictional characters? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so there is another part of the book. Sorry for spoiling the book. <laughs> no, go on. There is another part of the book that you would like to talk about. What? Yes. Um, it's one other part, and it's a little bit abstract. It has to do with mathematics, uh, and it goes like this. There is a flaw in the base of mathematics, and all mathematicians know this, but all the math that we use for making wonderful inventions and flying airplanes and making iPhones... Uh, all this lovely math has a flaw in it. And that flaw is called Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which basically says that any self-contained body of mathematics cannot be, uh, has statements that are true that cannot be proven to be true. And that's very frustrating for a mathematician that you can have something that's true and not be able to prove that it's true in that system of mathematics. Um, uh, so this notion, this Gödel's incompleteness theorem, rocked the math, the mathematical and logical world in the 19 teens and 1920s, and uh, the author 
likens the the problem very much to one of these strange loops, this idea of self-recursion. Uh, and it basically goes like this. Uh, you can turn any sentence into a mathematical expression. There's a bunch of ways to do it. You can either have subject plus verb minus the adjective equals some quantity, and each word can be a number from one to one trillion. But whatever it is, you can boil language into math, and any coherent, closed mathematical system can represent a language. Well, within that language, you can always create a statement that says, um, this statement isn't true. And I know it seems so basic. Uh, and that's the really funny thing about the theorem is that you can always make a statement that says something that's not correct. And in this case, you know, if the statement is true, then it isn't true. And if it's not true, then it is true. And you get one of those strange loops again, right? That can be frustrating and enticing and entangling and all this other kind of thing. It turns out that this problem isn't just one of consciousness, but it's also one at the very heart of mathematics. Uh, that same mathematics that we use every day that's doing the signal processing on the call between you and I uh, cannot provably be shown to be true. Again, it's a remarkable book. I am a strange loop. It covers a lot of ground in a really interesting way, and, uh, and I'm happy to recommend it today on your podcast. Thank you. I'm baffled. <laughs> I don't know if it comes across that this <laughs> strange loop of our connection right now, but um, it's it's a very it sounds like a very good book. Mm. Thank you for recommending it. Would you like to mention anything else about it? Uh, yes. Uh, that is, uh, I like this book, and his book, his next book after this, is called Surfaces and Essences. And I think that book is, uh, is even better and it's more ambitious. It's the ideas are even stronger. It builds on some of these ideas. One thing I didn't talk about, or I brushed against briefly was this idea that as we perceive things, we're not seeing what it is. As you and I talked about, we're bouncing it off of all the ideas that we've had before and everything mm -hmm. else. And so what we, perceive this this strange loop of i deals in symbols it doesn't deal in the real world it deals in symbols and it can change those symbols a, a smart brain can use those symbols in all kinds of ways and i'll use the example of a chair easiest thing in the world right four legs something you sit on but a chair can be a different thing in different circumstances if you need to change a light bulb a chair is a handy pedestal something you can stand on, mm -hmm. uh, a makeshift ladder. Uh, if you're in a bar fight, a chair can be a weapon. <laughs> you wouldn't want to sit on it and you might want to, you know, throw it at somebody. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I'm not encouraging this behavior, mind you, just the idea that symbols are flexible in our, in our minds. And that's what uh, our strange loops process and digest. I thought, and, mm. yeah, go on. No, 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 please. I thought that you wanted to talk about this uh, concept based ideal, you know, like when, when you think about the chair, then you think about um, a four legged object, 
but it can be white, it can be brown, it can be blue, it can be made of plastic, of wood, or, you know, whatever, like, different forms. It can have, like, rocking legs, like, so that you can mm. incline a little bit and rest your back in in that chair and things like that. It can have different shapes and forms, like languages in general, like there is a skeleton, then how it functions, this mathematical way of you know, what you just described, subject plus verb plus complement and so on. But ah. different languages have different, not necessarily different structures, but different aspects to the same structure. Like some, some languages put the adjectives in front of the nouns. Some, uh, mm. some adjectives are following the nouns. Depends on the logic of the language, but the skeleton, the structure is like, you know, the core of it is nearly always the same like it must have a subject and it must have a predicate and that's it yeah uh, it's 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 what's called like an emergent phenomenon kind of is you can break language down into words but it doesn't contain nearly as much information as when you string those words together mm. right you can you can make shakespeare or you can make Matsuo Basho, a haiku poet. Who's a who's a famous Hungarian author? I should know. Kostolányi Dezső, for example. Yeah. Hey, wait. How do you say that one more time? Kostolányi Dezső. Yeah. See, I should know that. Uh, <laughs> and I'm some sure in his works... native language, like it's wonderful. Yeah. Some of his works were even translated in English. Anyway. Mm. Um. Yeah. I agree, but. There is also like this quote that comes to my mind saying the whole is always more than just the sum of the parts. Exactly. Yeah. That's um that's that's really another way of describing emergent phenomenon that there's the you know you can break a sentence down into the words but the sentence is more than the sum of its parts. And it and it's the same thing with words. So we were talking about sentences, but let's boil it down to even something simple, just individual words. Mm -hmm. I use the example of a chair, and you countered with an excellent argument that what is indeed a chair, right? Is it this platonic idea of a perfect chair and everything else is being compared to it? Is it its function, anything that you can sit on that has four legs? Even a turtle, I guess, could be a chair <laughs> if it was moving slow enough. Um, Poor turtle. But... Uh, yeah, it's well, there's one concept that I really thought was interesting, and it's this concept of mother. Mm -hmm. And when you when you view it in your head, it's a it's a mom and a child. Um, but we use mother in so many different ways. Uh, you can use it in terms of ideas. This idea is the mother of that idea. Uh, you can turn you can use it uh, in terms of uh, I think they even use it in computer parts and things. This is a motherboard. Right? Is it? Did it have children boards, or what? How did that happen? And so, motherhood becomes not a thing, but a connection between, uh, or I guess the thing is the connection between things. It, mm -hmm. My language is failing me, but it's just an example of how words aren't mm -hmm. as crystal clear as we think. They have these amorphous ideas, and they're really symbols. Mm -hmm. Like mother tongue, for example, the first language we learn. Perfect. Yeah. Or, yeah, I used to teach in an online platform where we had parent classes and children classes. 
exactly for the same notion because like the main class was the content material and in children classes where the students divided up by class and um, the different tasks were submitted by them in their own ah. class in their own segment yeah anything else that you would like to talk about this book no, not, not this book, but the next book is really good, Surfaces and Essences. Uh, this book, though, I Am a Strange Loop, is a personal and lovely um, tour through someone's, uh, someone's really interesting ideas. Thank you for recommending it. What are you reading right now? I'm reading two books right now, both nonfiction. Usually I try to read fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, but right now I'm reading two uh, nonfiction books. One is called The Atlas of AI. Oh. Um, and yeah, yeah, it came out this year. Uh, and it's really a tour of what artificial intelligence means once you take away the science part. And it seems like that's counterintuitive, that the science part is what artificial intelligence is. But artificial intelligence is really uh, a lot of things. For one thing, it's built on information that maybe you and I didn't even know we were giving, that was, that was taken from us and compiled. Artificial intelligence runs, on, runs alongside humans, for example, an Amazon warehouse, where people have to keep up with the pace of computers instead of the opposite. People have to try and, 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 you know, live up to the standards of the machines that they're working next to instead of this, uh, instead of a nice relationship. And so artificial intelligence seeps into our lives in all kinds of ways. Uh, even when it comes to loan applications, police arrests, uh, all kinds of things that have real meaning in real people's lives. Uh, we don't look at it when, uh, closely enough. And so this book by Kate Crawford, is a uh, is a really interesting look uh, at artificial intelligence nowadays and the other book i'm reading is uh was written in the 1800s or maybe 1910 uh and it's by john muir uh an explorer uh from scotland and it's called the yosemite and it's about being a scottish guy wandering around in yosemite and it's I the exact opposite yosemite. say again I love Yosemite. Yeah, did you uh, did you enjoy Yosemite? Yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something else, you know. I mean, there are all kinds of wonders in the world, but only in Yosemite do they just like stack them on top of each other. <laughs> like, <all> right, <laughs> I don't quite agree with that statement, but I can understand why you're saying it. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's really well, the author certainly felt that way. Mm, um, okay. And uh, I read, I just finished his book called The Story of My Boyhood and Youth. And so one thing about California is everywhere you go here has something named after John Muir. And oh. I didn't know anything about him, uh, almost intentionally, because you just, you just can't avoid it. And so you're like, I don't want to know anything more about this guy. Mm. Uh, but it turns out he was a really interesting guy who uh, he he lived kind of the the Henry David Thoreau kind of lifestyle, but instead of looking at himself in a, in a pond and thinking things in solitude, um, he went out and explored. He walked like a thousand miles from Kentucky to Florida 
Uh, he explored all these trails and things like that and was a terrific writer. And so um, the, that book is a lot of fun. I just got back from Yosemite a couple of weeks ago. It was great. Nice. Nice. I bet if I read that book, I would want to go back there and explore more. Yeah, he lived there for four years and wow. the descriptions he has of like winter in Yosemite um, uh, and what the moonlight looks like when it's bouncing off of the mist of waterfalls. Uh, it makes me want to go, <laughs> go back and I just came back from there. <laughs> well, you can do that anytime. <laughs> Whenever you want it. Do you normally keep a list of the books that you've been reading? Yes. How did you know? <laughs> All right. That's a secret. <laughs> no, no. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's so nice to sit and talk about books because no, uh, nobody ever asked me these questions. But yeah, I read, I started maybe about 10 years ago, just keeping a list of the books I've read um, because uh, it's so much fun to look at the list, you know, once a year and go like, oh yeah, I forgot I read that. <laughs> Or, oh, that was good. So yeah, I do keep a list. Do you also like um, give a review or something? Like, do you follow any, you know, like book blogs yeah. or something? Yes, like goodreads.com is my recommendation it's um it's been around for a while uh but it's and it's only gotten better more people leave more reviews and it used to be that i would look at awards what book won you know the pulitzer the booker prize or or you know even more uh, explicit um, more specific awards mm -hmm. but uh on goodreads because you know you get a hundred thousand you know reviews uh you can kind of pick what what book did you know, 80% of the people like, or, you know, what book got the most votes. So I kind of like that now. Mm. Are you easily get influenced by it? Like, um, if, if a book has like terrible reviews, then you don't even read it or you don't bother, or you're looking out for like, you know, the bestsellers, the hits. The, one of the wonderful things about reading is that oftentimes, uh, in my life, at least the books link together. I'll be reading one and it'll mention another book or it'll give me an idea about something I want to learn about. And so then I'll go read about that one. Like there was a period about 10 years ago where I was reading just detective stories, you know, when I read one and I had to read another one and it wasn't because I really loved detective stories. It was just, they naturally fed off of each other. Do you, do you often get influenced by the reviews? Oh yeah. So, uh, not, not yet. Right now, I'm still in a process where um, either for work or interest, uh, those kinds of things drive my reading. Mm. Um, but with fiction, I'll say this, with fiction, now I'm relying more on uh, people's reviews. Mm. And that's a strange loop of I as well, <laughs> because you never know like what created, you know, that book, that particular book in someone who might be completely the opposite of you. So you might even like that person, uh, that book, mm. I mean. Have you written anything like fiction or nonfiction or anything that you're proud of and would you like to share? <laughs> uh, I haven't published anything, no. Um, I do like to write and 
I have to say that I'm good at it too. And that's a weird thing to say from somebody who's, you know, I suppose the less you've published, the more you can say that. Um, it doesn't matter. Or the more you're inclined to say that. I think publishing is one thing. Not always everything gets published and not everybody gets published. I think you have to be very pushy or not necessarily talented, but you have to have very good connections to be published. Especially mm -hmm. nowadays, you have to have like a good budget and big sponsorship behind your back if you want to get published. Yeah, and yeah, there you're right. There's a difference between writing and, and publishing. Um, and, and I suppose there's a lot of people who, who may write with no intention to get published, like Emily Dickinson or, or somebody. Um, I, don't, I don't write like that, but I do find ways to express myself in the written word. Mm. Um, what genre are you writing in? I wrote, I was, when I was living in Japan, which was um, just right before the pandemic, uh, so right up until March of 2020. So from 2016 to 2020, I was living in Japan and, uh, I wrote haiku and, uh, apparently I got good enough at it to, um, to pay for, uh, dinner once with a haiku. Uh, and, uh, I also won, uh, a, a, a magnificent prize where, uh, they hung one of my haikus in, a sacred garden in Japan. Wow. Uh, Congratulations. Along with the Yeah. I don't know if you knew that, Elza, but that's that's maybe the the most significant award I've ever received. Nice. Um, Congratulations. Um now a question rises into me. Did you write it in English or in Japanese? So etone ego Um I I wrote in English. <laughs> okay. I I use I use English to write. This is what I think what I said. Mm. Yeah. So it was a little bit rigged because uh, they, uh, I, or I shouldn't maybe rigged isn't the right word, but they are willing to include uh, an English language entry. So there were ten people that won the award. Nine of them were Japanese, and I was the one that was selected for English. Wow. Congratulations. Really. It was it was really uh, it was really quite amazing and I still get goosebumps when I think about it. I got goosebumps too. Thank you for <laughs> sharing. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you Elsa, for, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for encouraging our listeners and enjoy reading your books and I hope once I can also or we can also read your haikus and your articles <laughs> or, or anything you write. Thank you for today. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this month as well and follow Elsa's Mundo. Stay tuned for more book reviews. Bye.